The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yes? Uh, coffee, please. Uh, I also want something to go. Yeah. You have, um, you have any grilled cheese sandwiches? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, let me have uh, a thousand. And, um... Uh, 300 tuna fish and 200 bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. You want lettuce on rye? Uh, 490 on rye. Let me have 110 uh, on whole wheat and 300 on white bread. Fernandez, one on roll. Uh, one on roll. And the tuna? All the tuna on whole wheat and uh, all the bacon, lettuce, and tomato. Let me have on toast. Right. And uh, what to drink? Uh, let me have 700 regular coffees, uh, 500 Cokes, and 1,000 7-Ups. And also, Coleslaw for 900 men. Right. You want anything with these sandwiches? Uh, mayonnaise on the side. Right. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 20, or 31st, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today. Don't you just hate it when the guy in front of you orders 300 tunas while you're waiting in line at the at the drive-thru? <laughs> Drive-thrus definitely are on the agenda today. And, you know, the devil is in the details. You, you know, you think it's all gone away in the news. I'll have to bring you up to date on what actually happened to the whole drive-thru ban issue and what legislation or what bylaws uh, City Hall actually passed. Also be talking about the Idiot's Guide to a Carbon Footprint, and we'll be hearing a little bit about what Lawrence Solomon said to the Petroleum Club. But uh, first, uh, oh, before I carry on, too, I almost got the date wrong. I almost feel like I'm doing a new show. 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation today or have a comment to make. And just write chrw at gmail.com is our email address if you'd like to share some stuff with us. A lot of people pass along uh, interesting newspaper articles and items of interest to me using that particular means. Now, did you see that headline in, in, in on the cover of last Monday's London Free Press? Was that, was that wacko or what? When I first saw it, I thought, oh my God, what happened? Ecological catastrophe, reads the headline. Huge head, heading right on the front page of the Free Press. And when I first saw it, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what's happened? Another tsunami that swept away hundreds of thousands of people? An earthquake, maybe, that finally has flattened San Francisco? <laughs> you know, an oil spill that, that killed millions of fish and birds or something like that? No, you, you move up to the paper, you get a little closer, and you see the fine print, like, like the story. And, of course, that's not the case. How silly of me to forget that in news-speak language, ecological means political. Because ecological disaster 
that was referred to in the headline was, in fact, that Environment Canada, during the period 2004 to 2008, had purchased 111 Chevy Silverados, 45 Ford F-150s and F-250s, 19 Dodge Rams, and 40, with an asterisk, SUVs. There's your ecological disaster. That was the ecological disaster that made it to the front page of the paper. Now, I have to ask you, if, if that is an ecological disaster, exactly what words do we have left to distinguish this kind of disaster from the kinds that I just described? You know, like, what are they going to say to that? Is that just going to be a, a passing fancy, something that doesn't even register on the radar? I don't know what words are left to try and top that one. I just thought that was a funny thing to talk about. Uh, speaking of ecological disasters, I um, got a copy of the Pearson Report uh, from London North Centre MP Glenn Pearson's constituency newsletter, which is, uh, I don't live in that writing, but someone passed it on to me, and it has the front page heading on the newsletter, quote, Canada can have both a strong economy and a clean environment, end quote. Now, you know, I happen to believe that's perfectly true, uh, nor, nor could it be any other way, because uh, without a strong economy, you simply cannot muster the resources and high technologies necessary to maintain and create a clean environment, especially when you have people who are consuming and producing. Unfortunately, when you look into it, the liberal Pearson plan here uh, wants to put the cart before the horse. Environment first, economy second. Well, I don't know if that's going to work. Um, you know, promoting climate change as a key issue for the Liberals, um, and by the way, will the real Green Party please stand up, you know, because here's the Liberals taking on the whole Green platform. But Pearson writes the following, and I thought this was rather interesting, and I quote, The Green Shift is a meaningful and serious policy, the kind that comes along once in a generation. I have, I have been saddened to see the way some have ridiculed its announcement, seeking to drag its initiatives to the lowest common denominator. In linking the green shift to the battle against poverty, Stéphane Dion has come up with a dynamic new way of looking at the present Canadian condition, end quote. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, holy leaping logic, Batman. Uh, you know, Predictably, as I've demonstrated over and over again with respect to the green religion on this show, Pearson makes you know, the following argument, or should I say the non-argument, and you always hear this from the people promoting green. Quote, it is not my purpose here to outline the various strengths of the green shift. Well, if you're not going to do it there, where on earth are you ever going to do it, right? Many will support and there will be some detractors. The point is that one person staked his whole political future on the healthy future of our children and grandchildren, and that is to be commended whether a person agrees or not. End quote. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I think it's disgusting. I, I don't think it's commendable in the least. I think anybody who uses the, the future and the children and the grandchildren and an infinite regress of future generations who might eventually reap some unspecified imaginary reward at our expense, that's nothing less than religious extremism at the political level, is it? Your reward will be in the next life, so goes the argument. Sacrifice in this life for the next life. And that's where you see that theme coming through all the time. The benefit is never for you. 
You're never going to get the benefit. It's your kids. It's their kids. It's their kids' kids. It's their kids' 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 kids. But, and what do you suppose the politicians will be telling our kids' 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 kids? They'll be telling them the same story. And <laughs> it'll just go on forever and ever. Uh, but that's, that's what you get. Now, I'll tell you why now is a good time to impose a carbon tax, which is also... Uh, what 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 they're them what they want to do? They, he thinks right now is a great time to put a carbon tax on. Okay, and really, I think the reason that it is is because the average Joe is losing his job and doesn't have the cash to pay all those heavy liberal taxes directly out of his pocket anymore. So you know, if you're using the blood from stone principle, which is how taxation really operates in practice, um, the government, you know, they look for those making record profit to pick up the tab for the rest who all end up paying for it anyways as taxpayers and consumers and in other ways their lost jobs and prosperity being part of the price that they pay for all of this government meddling in the marketplace. Now of course many would argue that uh, uh, Stefan Dion does not have a political future and that is why he has hypocritically jumped on this green bandwagon. But uh, I guess that would be dragging the initiatives of the green shift to the lowest common denominator, and we wouldn't want to do that, would we? So <laughs> let us press on. And, uh, you know, uh, some say difficult economic times aren't the seasons to launch a serious initiative on carbon reduction. I say there's no better time. And whether you agree or disagree with the green shift, one thing is certain, says Pearson, there will be no going back. And he puts that in bold. This will be the first generation where our children and grandchildren will be worse off than their parents. Isn't that nice to know? Is that a warning? Is that a promise? Or is that just the cost of going to the green shift? He doesn't really say. He just makes it as a passing comment. Maybe he's hoping you'll identify with it. Listen, we'll take a break right now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the carbon footprint and some interesting things going on between business and uh, the lobby community and government on the green issue. Back after this brief break. It's good to see friends out here tonight. Friends with friends, huh? That's wonderful. But I'm going to tell you, there's different types of friends we have in life, huh? Like there's a type of friend you've known your whole entire life. And that is the only reason you're still friends with them. They've earned tenure. Huh, because you know, you're always bringing up the times when you used to be compatible with each other. When you used to hang out, you always mentioned that time. Oh man, remember the time we were wearing parachute pants? <laughs> Hanging out on the moped? Yeah. Then you have like acquaintance friends, huh? You have acquaintance friends. Like I have a movie friend. We always go to films with one another. But whenever the movie's over, it becomes Siskel and Ebert. Always critiquing the film. Well, Brad, I felt that the movie was contrived. I didn't think the characters had a full chance to develop and the theme music was all wrong. I'm like, hey, Rod, lighten up. It's a porno. for taking the one-ton challenge? Sure you do. There's climate change, cleaner air, saving money, the environment. You choose. Look, 
there are literally a ton of ways you can use less energy and lower your greenhouse gas emissions by one ton. There's public transportation, there's carpooling, using Energy Star appliances, and what else? It's all right here in your free guide, so order yours and get all you need to know on taking the one-ton challenge. Come on, we're Canadian. We're up for a challenge. A message from the Government of Canada. It's your free guide. Yeah, get your free guide paid for by the Government of Canada. It's free. It's free. Everything paid for by the government of Canada is free. Did you not know that? <laughs> that, of course, was Rick Mercer in a government-run ad that was running back around 2005 on TV. First time I ever saw Rick Mercer. Never even heard of him. Isn't that, isn't that a shame to admit? <laughs> and he didn't endear me to himself right off the bat with that particular ad because I thought it was silly on the face of it. And, uh, of course, that was uh, the early days of getting this concept uh, going, this whole concept of carbon footprints. By the way, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you'd like to join the show. London Free Press, July 26th, uh, Steve Merritt, uh, or sorry, Myrtle writes, um, Time to Crunch Numbers on Carbon Footprints, that's the headline. And this is out of Vancouver, and he writes, How big is your personal carbon footprint? Are you treading on the Earth's climate in ballet slippers or tromping on it with combat boots? If you don't know, you're not alone. Carbon emissions, mostly CO2, are being blamed for their supposed role in climate change, but it's hard to get people to think about their activities in terms of the carbon they release. The B.C. government launched a forced consciousness-raising effort this month, with a carbon tax on vehicle and home heating fuels. Just what we need, right? I think we need a tax on all our fuel. And the federal liberals are proposing a carbon tax on industry. For a while, funny man Rick Mercer was exhorting Canadians to take the one-ton challenge. But what did that mean exactly? That's where the personal carbon calculator can help, say, experts. We've heard from a lot of people who use these calculators that it really is an eye-opener for them, says Paul Engel climate change program campaigner at the Vancouver-based David Suzuki Foundation. Well, where else? Understanding that you have a carbon footprint and some of the major components of it is an excellent way to start thinking through one's energy use, end quote, says Kentucky writer Nancy Grant, author of The Pocket Idiot's Guide to Your Carbon Footprint, end quote. Well, now, that's what the article says, and I, I was thinking, you know, an idiot's guide to your carbon footprint. How... How apropos. Isn't that the right thing to call it? You remember those other, other guides they had, uh, you know, windows for dummies? You know, that wasn't so offensive. I didn't mind being called a dummy. But isn't there something a little bit more offensive about uh, being an idiot? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but the concept of a carbon footprint, I, I think, is just this obscene socialist concept related, as always, to the distribution of resources and a forced allocation of those resources by the state. That's what it's all about. That's what this whole green movement is about. It's nothing more, nothing less. And if you stop to think about it for a minute, the very notion of a finite supply of energy uh, very much requires that the believer in such nonsense be an idiot. Maybe that's why they call it the idiot's guide. You've got to be one to even bother reading the darn thing. Because everything that exists is energy or matter, and matter is just another form of energy. We talked about that with some of the guests we've had on this show, on this show, and especially Andy Jansen a few weeks ago, 
who explained the energy that we can just get out of water is incredible. We'll be able to power our cars and do all sorts of amazing things with it. And this is all going to be answered by technology. So there is no fixed pie. Never has been, never will be. It is a complete political and economic superstition. It's nothing more. And speaking of idiots, though it's not the word he used, I refer you to a rare bright spot in the whole green debate, something that actually made me smile and not frown. And this came in, in the form of last week's London Free Press editorial, uh, July 24th, by Laurie Goldstein, quote, Carbon Quacks and Reality Deniers, which I think was among his most blunt and succinct appraisals of the whole green situation, uh, the green religion. Here's what he had to say, in part. I just pick out some of the the more, you know, parts I like the best. <laughs> Quote, never let it be said of Canadian politicians that they are climate deniers. They are reality deniers. They deny reality by advocating, quote, solutions, end quote, to global warming that will not work, although they will make governments, energy corporations, and stock market speculators richer than they already are at our expense. End quote. Now, Goldstein makes no distinction, uh, really, here, which was amazing, between the liberal green policies or the conservative green policies, both camps fitting neatly into his defined category of reality-denying. And then he goes on and he says, quote, he says, think about it. Our politicians ask us to believe that humanity is facing Armageddon from man-made global warming, that is, imminent worldwide climate catastrophe, you know, there's that word that was on the front page of the free press there, eh? uh, that will scorch the earth, kill and displace hundreds of millions of people, drown cities and cause massive starvation and disease. And what's their solution? It's to impose another tax on us or to create another stock market, which is all that a cap-and-trade system is. Try not to laugh or cry. It's not just that carbon taxes and cap-and-trade don't remove one molecule of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It's that our politicians are ignoring evidence that they're ineffective, impractical, outdated, and punitive. As for carbon taxes, as Doug Saunders of the Globe and Mail reported in his May article, Fuel Protests Herald Grim Times for European Green Policy, voters across Europe are in open revolt against years of so-called green and carbon taxes, while the politicians who impose them are all in retreat. Finally, if our politicians really believed the world was facing catastrophic climate change, don't you think they would have stopped calling each other names by now and formed a national coalition government to deal with this emergency? They would if they weren't reality deniers, he concludes. Now, I have to hand it to Lori Goldstein for framing the whole green debate such as it is being touted these days in the, in the true silliness of the whole concept of carbon taxes. I, uh, on one of the, I remember back when I was uh, um, you know, sitting in for Jim Chapman about a year or two ago, I hosted a show for him here, here at this very radio station, and I made the same arguments about carbon taxes being the most ridiculous and outrageous solution to a problem that doesn't even exist, and even if it did, couldn't possibly address the problem of climate change. You know, you might as well be doing a rain dance around a campfire It'd be about as effective as, as carbon taxes. Cause, so that, that's why you always have to ask, why are they doing this? And just as an aside, you know, Laurie says, why didn't they form some national coalition government to deal with the emergency? Well, they did. It's called the UN. And Laurie complains about it all the time. <laughs> so that's not the answer either. 
and maybe somebody who has a bit of a better answer and this this is something to me that stood out for uh, for just a number of reasons because I just you just don't see people saying this uh, particularly uh, it's not exactly politically correct and when you're talking to the business community um, you know, sometimes the business community, and I, I, I speak in defense of free enterprise, which is not the same as business, okay? Uh, sometimes the business community needs a bit of a slap up the side of the head just to, to wake them up, to make them realize just where they are and what the problem is that they're facing. And that's a little bit of what Lawrence Solomon did when he addressed the Petroleum Club about a month ago. And a part of his address appeared in the National Post on June 28th. Now, Lawrence Solomon, of course, is the head of Energy Probe. He's got a book out called The Deniers. Um, maybe I'll get to be in volume two sometime. Who knows? But I'm not an expert, you see. But uh, on a tour last month, he was promoting this book, and he gave this uh, speech to the Petroleum Club in Calgary. And after pointing out to industry leaders that James Hansen, one of the leaders in the climate change movement down in the U.S., said that they, quote, should be tried for high crimes against humanity and nature, end quote, and that David Suzuki here at home sees those who abet CO2 emissions as criminals, Solomon appealed to the industry on somewhat different terms than you usually see in modern politics. So here's a bit of what he had to say. I just found this extraordinarily uh, significant. Quote, I bet some of you see yourselves as criminals or something close to it because there's something in human nature that makes us feel guilty, even for crimes we didn't commit, let alone for non-crimes. You've been cowed into silence. Instead of making your case to the public, instead of defending yourselves in your industry, you've thrown in the towel or tried to be greener than green, hoping to avoid recrimination. But on the global warming issues, based on the evidence to date, you have nothing to feel guilty about. No crime has been committed. No known harm has occurred. You've been had. The fears of cataclysm over global warming are unfounded. There is no consensus on climate change, despite what Al Gore and the UN's panel on climate change would have you believe. Let me tell you why most people think that global warming is a serious problem. It comes down to one number, 2,500. 2,500 scientists can't be wrong, the press always says, explicitly or implicitly. Without that number, it would have no basis for the claim that they repeat over and over again that there is a consensus on climate change. <clears throat> 2,500 is an impressive number of scientists. To find out who exactly they were, I contacted the Secretariat of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I asked for their names. The Secretariat replied that the names were not public. So I couldn't have them. And I learned that the 2,500 scientists were reviewers, not endorsers. Those scientists hadn't endorsed anything. They'd merely reviewed one or more of the literally hundreds of background studies, some important and some not, that were part of this immense United Nations bureaucratic process. They did not review the final report, nor endorse it. Their reviews weren't even all favorable. Several of the deniers in my book, and again, this is Lawrence Solomon talking, are among those 2,500. And those deniers and others generally considered the UN's work a travesty. There is no endorsement by 2,500 UN scientists. The press has been taken, and so the public has been taken. The extent to which the public has been taken may surprise you. Not only is there no consensus, 
The scientists who are skeptics, the deniers, have extraordinary uh, credentials, people at the very top echelons of the scientific establishment. They are the who's who of science. Not only do they disagree with the UN conclusions, they often value CO2 for the benefits it provides the planet. Satellite data shows the planet is now the greenest it has been in decades. Until recently, after all, CO2 was universally viewed as nature's fertilizer. If these top scientists are right, you are being attacked without justification. Your present strategy of lying low and hoping all this will pass has gotten you nowhere. You need to make your case factually and frankly. The public will be skeptical of your arguments, as it should be. But if your critics can't counter your factual arguments, it is your critics who will fail. You need to decide. Remember, he's talking to the business leaders in the oil community. Do you want to go on being attacked for something that may be laudable, for producing CO2, which may well be laudable? Do you want to go on feeling guilty out of public ignorance of where scientists truly stand on the global warming issue? On global warming, the science is not settled. You have the facts on your side, but the facts will count for naught as long as you see the battle lost, end quote. That is just a remarkable statement by Lawrence Solomon. And uh, it wasn't just what he had to say, but the boldness uh, of the way he approached the business community. It was in the most unusual uh, way, you know, a request of an advocate of reason and reality directed at our industry here, which seems incapable or unwilling to defend itself from uh, openly unjust attacks by what is really the anti-industrial green movement. And that's what really needs to be explained, is that it's all part of the same old anti-industrialist uh, movements that have been around for years and years. Now, we're going to take a break right now. And just before that break, what you're going to hear is uh, a reaffirmation from a completely other source of uh, what Lauren Solomon just said to the Petroleum Club. This is really fascinating stuff. And this is, again, from that film, uh, Global Warming or Global Governments. And this is how they created their policies and decided uh, that the world is heating up and that it's an emergency. Here we go. As we have already seen, there are serious discrepancies in the man-caused global warming theory. Yet it's not all the media's fault. They are repeatedly told by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the IPCC, that man is causing global warming. The IPCC announced its summary for policymakers during a press conference in Paris in February 2007, announcing that the science had advanced so much that they can now say that man-caused global warming is a 90% certainty. And the scientific leaders of the world have given us the fourth unanimous report in less than 15 years. They gathered this time in Paris six weeks ago. And they said the evidence supporting this consensus is, and I quote them, unequivocal, unequivocal. We hear constantly in the media, we hear on a variety of different formats uh, in the news media as well as on specials. Al Gore just produced his video, The Inconvenient Truth, that he reaffirms time and time and time again in that video that there is no longer any debate. It's a settled science. Most government and media get the wrong impression by only reading the summaries for policymakers. The alarmist and misleading overviews of the IPCC's science reports. Now, this summary for policymakers isn't a summary for policymakers at all. It's a summary by policymakers. In other words, it is a summary which is agreed line by line by government representatives. 
The IPCC is a political organisation set up by the United Nations to provide evidence to support the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which has been signed by governments. It's, it's, in, it's, it's entirely political. Just how political is explained by Chris Horner of CNN's Headline News' Glenn Beck Show. These scientists are generally assigned one page to a page and a half to write with one other author. They're never asked if they agree with anything else, never asked if they agree with the, the chapter, the underlying work, let alone the summary for policymakers, which is written by bureaucrats and politicians and pressure group lobbyists who are in one room down a hall where the lead authors of the chapters, which are compilations of these page to page and a half uh, writings, uh, and a runner runs back and forth telling the lead authors, the scientists, the, uh, the uh, pressure group lobbyists want you to change the following to be in harmony with the summary. Remember, this is a document that is produced generally, the summary of which is issued months before the actual underlying work is actually even written. That should tell you something. And the, uh, this writing process whereby runners subject, you know, very credentialed scientists, uh, many of whom have dropped off, to the humiliation of, of having to change their underlying work to agree with something politicians want to say. I was at a table with three Europeans. We were having lunch. And they were talking about their role as lead authors. And they were talking about how they were trying to make the report so dramatic that the United States would just have to sign up to the Kyoto Protocol. Pony Hyundai. Um, <laughs> jealous. You guys are jealous. So uh, it's a gas barbecue with wheels, basically. This thing. It's just. Yeah, this car goes from zero to 60 any day now. All right. This. This car lost a rig to a Zamboni. All right. It is just. Uh, Zamboni, of course, a very famous Roman. Um, Here's how bad the pony high ended. In the crash test, the car broke down on the way to the wall. Right? <laughs> they just pushed the car into the wall to make it road safe. Right? The dummies refused to get in the car. That's how bad it is. Guess, I guess they wouldn't call them the crash test idiots, would they? <laughs> we we do live in a car culture, and uh, that's certainly true uh, of about our next subject. By the way, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you'd like to join the conversation. I'm Bob Metz. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. Be with you for the next half hour or so. You know that old saying, the devil is in the details. Uh, you know, it is so, so true. And the reason the devil is there, I think, <laughs> to use the the visual, is I think details are boring to most people. I sure was bored when I forced myself to go through this following exercise, that what I found in the details was amazing. Now, after all the outrageously intense media coverage about a proposed drive-through ban, remember all that stuff? which everybody said would never happen, quote. It's amazing how the media kind of completely dropped the story after the ban happened. And you're going, what? There's no ban. I didn't hear about a ban. I'm still going to the drive-thru. Well, it didn't happen the way you think. It's in the details. And I'll let you decide for yourself whether you think there's been a ban or not. Maybe it's even worse than a ban. 
But I think most of the media was sort of massaged into believing that because a drive-through ban was, quote, not on the agenda, and I talked about this in detail, that the proposed amendments to the drive-through bylaws and regulations merely related to common sense restrictions, you know, like protecting private property and the rights of the neighboring communities and all that kind of stuff, which I thought we had in place already, and I think we did. So I got a copy of City Hall Minutes, went through it, went through all the boring details, and look at what I found. Appendix B to the City of London's amendments to the official plan for the City of London, which was passed in open council, quote-unquote, on July 21st, 2008, that's last week Monday, signed by the Mayor of the City, reads partially as follows, quote, Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the office residential zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the office conversion zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the restricted office zone. Drive-through facilities not permitted in the office zone. Drive-through facilities not permitted in the downtown area zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the business district commercial zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the convenience commercial zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the automobile service station zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the office business park zone. Drive-through facilities are not permitted in the rural settlement commercial zone. End quote, just to name a few. Now, these are all restrictions that did not exist before July 21st, and the words not permitted in sure sound an awful lot like a ban to me. You know, I not permitted. Let me see that ban. No, maybe it means something else. I don't know. And of course it does, doesn't it? Because why didn't business scream louder? I really don't know how many others were already in place before these bans were added. But if the names of these zones have anything to do with their applied purpose, which of course is not necessarily the case in, in the la-la land of politics, then not permitting drive-throughs in convenience commercial zones, rural settlement areas, uh, downtown zones is a little bit weird, if you ask me. You know, wouldn't the list have been a lot shorter, maybe, if they told us where drive-throughs are permitted? Where are they permitted now? What's left? What kind of? And and I gotta be gotta be honest. I mean, you gotta give them credit. The word ban did not appear on the agenda anywhere. They were right about that. That word ban wasn't anywhere, honest. You won't find the word ban in this anyway, because they use the words are not permitted. And yet, now let's quote this. What is the purpose of the amendment according to the amendment itself? I'm quoting from the, legis from the bylaw. Quote, to add a new policy to Section 4 commercial of the office plan, or sorry, the official plan for the City of London to identify the locations where drive-through facilities will not be permitted and identify the process for consideration of requests for new drive-through facilities in these designations. And I'm sitting there reading that. Oh, wait a minute. You just said they, they weren't permitted. Now you're talking about a process for considering requests for new drive-through facilities in those non-permitted designations. At least that's how I'm reading it. If I'm wrong, you call me up. 519-661-3600. And the second reason, they say, is to add a new policy to various sections of the official plan for the City of London to require an amendment to the zoning bylaw for new drive-through facilities in those designations. And the third one is to make wording changes to Section 11.1.2, Urban Design Principles, to identify urban design guidelines as a possible implementing tool 
end quote. I always like that term, implementing tool. You know, that's, that's fascist speak for those using force to micromanage other people's businesses. It's just a tool. It's our tool. Yeah, it's a club. You're hitting people on the head with it. That's a tool. Uh, you know, in, in fact, the amendment to the official plan explicitly states this, quote, Within the pedestrian-oriented downtown and business district commercial land use designations, proposals for new drive-through facilities will be subject to concurrent applications for a zoning bylaw amendment and site plan approval. Such applications will only be considered for approval in circumstances where the location, design, and function of the drive-through facility maintains the intent of the official plan, end quote. Now, that word intent just begs for definition, doesn't it? I've seen, I've seen this in so many areas of politics before. Whatever, whatever a law or regulation may say, the intentions of those who propose and pass a law are often quite varied, contradictory, and very ambiguous. So when politicians use words like intent, what they're telling you is that they are the boss and that it's their intent that will be applied subjectively through the so-called approval process at the time and at the whim of some bureaucrat when you go to apply for approval. Just like downtown Moscow business is done. I don't know if you ever saw those series of the Soviet Union, how that city is run by uh, central governments and central bureaucrats. By the way, it's important to be aware that none of the drive-through amendments are based on environmental concerns per se. That's not what we're talking about here even though uh, green philosophy is being applied liberally throughout, no question. There are amendments relating to urban design and, and land use planning, but, but you could, if you wanted to, uh, you know, call it a green shift in planning by business people and those who invest their own time and money in their businesses to planning by government. That's the green shift there. After all, government-run enterprises are so well known for their superiority over the private sector, aren't they? That's why they should be running everything. I've already spoken, uh, and if you don't know this show, that's sarcasm, just to be certain. Uh, I've already spoken in detail uh, on past shows about municipal plans for London's downtown, plans which I've consistently been hearing for my entire life in this city, with really, I don't think, any payoff for the average citizen. Municipal downtown plans quote-unquote, continue to burden themselves upon homeowners and property business taxpayers across the entire city all the time, making their personal quality of life decline in the name of the public interest. So, you know, that's what they want. They want to increase the, uh, the quality of public life and getting out there and being in the Blabat Center and that kind of stuff, which still costs us, I understand, somewhere around 300000 a month, taxpayers. Uh, but uh, our municipal politicians, with one or two exceptions, and I've talked about them too, they seem less committed to providing us with essential infrastructures because, you know, they like to depend on federal and provincial handouts for that, uh, which also comes out of your pocket. But uh, ha have you noticed how municipalities and, and governments at the municipal level have become very intimately involved with the promotion and subsidization of entertainment and leisure? It almost seems to be the big business they're into now. And central to the vision of Gord Hume and Judy Bryant and, and the rest of them is, is this fundamental principle, at least as they've publicly expressed it thus far. And I'm talking about this because we're talking about, you know, getting back to what is their intent. What is their intent? So you have to listen to what their intent is. And they want their intent is reduced use of cars and lots of more walking, pedestrian traffic, sidewalk cafes, theaters, blah, 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 all this 
you know, fancy, fancy, smancy stuff, which is why I, I titled my discussion of that topic back on uh, March 23rd and on two shows previously, Making Downtown Pedestrian. And I think it's becoming clear that these folks want to make the whole city pedestrian. By the way, if you want to hear uh, some of those shows, I don't think I mentioned it yet. Uh, you can get archives of all these shows and even connect to this show from the website Just uh, or sorry, yeah, Just Right Media. Uh, org, and you'll be able to get the show. Right now we're going to take a break, and we'll, we will come back with some more of those nasty details in the bylaw. You'll be surprised what you hear right after this. You know what the problem is? The problem is, is, is I'm, a, I'm a Toronto driver, right? Are you Toronto drivers? Yeah. Uh, and I, I should say right off the top, you don't have to live in Toronto to be a Toronto driver. You can live anywhere in the world. It's a personality trait, isn't it? Here, here's a little test you can take to see if you're really genuinely Toronto drivers, okay? You're driving on the highway, someone's tailgating you, and they're flashing their high beams in your rearview mirror. Do you A, slam on the brake suddenly, <laughs> B, pull over, let them pass, then come in behind them and flash your high beams in their rearview mirror, <laughs> or C, speed up every time they get a chance to pass from the inside lanes or an oncoming truck. If you answered any of the above, you're a Toronto driver. <laughs> you didn't understand the question, you're a Montreal driver. Because <laughs> that's a different category of driver altogether, isn't it? And even the pedestrians are insane. Nobody pays attention to traffic signals in that city. They're just like year-round Christmas decorations. back to Montreal, actually, which is a fabulous city, the worst city for driving. Have you ever driven to Montreal? The worst rules. You can't turn right on a red light. You can go through it. You know, that is no problem. <laughs> the stop signs in Montreal says arrête. Arrête in French means optional, I guess. You know, just <laughs> stop if you want to. Try and beat the bus. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us in our last quarter of the hour. Uh, you know, Toronto drivers, Montreal drivers, it's funny how they each have their reputations and they're joked about a lot of times. I wonder how long it'll be before uh, London gets a reputation for its drivers and some of the things we've been doing. I think the only big reputation we've gotten so far is for our, our sinkhole, but maybe uh, our driving and our whole deal with this... Uh, drive-through ban is getting us a little attention, but you know, we're not unique in that either. But for the next few minutes, I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who might want to go into business, maybe say open up a fast food restaurant or something like that. And you might think, you know, what would be some of the major concerns? You want to be worried about the food, how well it was served, your clients and things like that. But boy, that's just the tip of the iceberg of some of the things that other people, like governments and municipalities, will force upon you for considerations. Now, remember all those devilish details I mentioned at the top of uh, the last segment there? Well, here are just a few more of them. 
You're talking about using urban design as a tool. Remember the tool that they're going to use uh, for business? Well, here's how they're going to apply the tool. Under urban design goals, by the way, this is, again, all out of the city hall and municipal minutes and the, in, in the bylaw they just put through. Uh, under urban design goals, one, support, enhance, and create a high-quality public realm. Two, support and enhance the pedestrian environment and pedestrian connections. Odd thing to ask for a drive-through, isn't it? <laughs> Everything pedestrians first at the drive-through, I guess. Uh, built form and streetscape. That's another section they have, and there they want the business person to quote provide weather protection at the main building entrance for areas close to public transit stops. Remember Judy Bryant saying in the middle of her whole green green philosophy there, right at the end. Oh, and we'll have transit. Just came out of the blue, but here it is, back in there. Uh, they want the business people to provide areas for bicycle parking, walkways, and, and places with pedestrian amenities. Can you see what's coming here? Uh, provide context with adjacent and neighboring buildings. Landscape the area in front of any blank walls and use projections, recesses, arcades, awnings, color and texture to reduce the visual size of any, any unglazed walls. Coordinate architectural detail and character while providing a diversity of forms. Hmm. Be the same, but be different. That's easy of all. I can do that. Use green building technologies such as green roofs, drip irrigation, and other leadership in energy and environmental design approaches. Which, by the way, is a name of some kind of group because it was all capitalized and it has the, uh, it's called LEED for short. So obviously someone's uh, directing this. And quote, of course, ensure a safe and convenient... Wow, they actually, actually say something positive about convenience here. Uh, ensure a safe and convenient experience through the site and the public street environment. Again, you see the whole public street pedestrian. And here's a section actually called Pedestrian Circulation and Cyclist Amenities. Design structure should give pedestrian and cyclist circulation the priority. <laughs> Remember, we're talking about a drive-through, okay? I don't know how... You, try, try and even find some kind of analogy to, to point out how stupid some of these things are. Uh, provide weather protection at the main building entrance for areas close to public transit stops, bicycle parking, walkways, and in places with pedestrian amenities. Give pedestrian priority through the site, including parking areas by distinguishing walkways from driving surfaces, using varied pavement treatments, and where necessary, raising walkways to the curb level. Provide customer entrance doors that are close to transit shops and public sidewalks, while providing convenient pedestrian access to parking areas. Not asking too much, are they? But they basically, you can see what they're doing. They're doing municipal planning through the private sector, you see. And then there's vehicular access and parking guideline one vehicular entrances should be minimized in both width and number to enhance the overall pedestrian experience guideline eight provide only the minimum number of parking spaces required by the zoning bylaw to reduce excess parking and provide opportunities for increased landscaping areas and amenities well now isn't that a funny one here we have a complete movement the whole green movement, let's get rid of drive-throughs and let's make everybody park. And let's make them all sit down and, uh, you know, turn the car off and start the car up again. Meanwhile, here's a guideline right in the municipality's uh, bylaws saying that you have to provide a minimum number of parking spaces because they are discouraging you from putting parking spaces in. 
So, uh, you know, green movement, meet guideline eight of vehicular access and parking. See if you can do something about that one first. Well, under landscaping, even landscaping, you know, quote, plant trees between seven and ten meters apart with approximately ten meters square of soil per tree. Give preference to native species of the region. Protect existing vegetation while featuring heritage specimen and mature trees on the site by minimizing grade changes and preserving permeable surfaces. Use innovative features to collect, store, and filter stormwater in order to improve groundwater recharge. Are you glazing over yet, you know? Can you imagine trying to go in the business and even trying to figure out what they want and what they're asking for and what's different about this and what we were doing before kind of thing? And, of course, if they're going to do this, of course, they're going to tell you how to put the signage up. Ground-mounted and wall-mounted signs should maintain the overall streetscape objectives. Design sign illumination to be task-oriented. That's interesting. Your sign illumination has to be designed to be task-oriented. Hmm. Signs should be included in the drive-through lanes that indicate that excessive noise from cars and radios and idling should be reduced. Ah, I see. So they want to have a sign in the lane that says, shut up. <laughs> okay, basically, turn it down, turn the radio down. Micromanagement continues on other levels, one being the introduction of a new official term called stacking lane, okay, through which the uh, regulation of on-site space usage is predetermined by the city. And so they now say that the number of stacking spaces for uses with drive-through facilities are... And by stacking, I think they mean the lineup of cars waiting to go through the drive-thru. Uh, for a donut or coffee shop, it's 15. For fast food or eat-in restaurant, it's 12. For a service station with convenient sales, it's nine spaces. For a financial institution or automated teller, it's four spaces. Uses that request a lower stacking lane capacity must submit a queuing study to the city to identify the stacking capacity required. A queuing study is also required when projected volumes are greater than or equal to 60 vehicles per hour. A minimum of three spaces, or 16 meters, whichever is greater, is required between the road right-of-way and the entrance to the stacking lane. Stacking lane spaces are included in the overall parking requirement for the site. End quote. Oh, man. Talk about outrageous. Now, you know, when you have regulations in place like this, people actually make business decisions around it like some, you know rather than submit a queuing study that which may be expensive and and cost a lot of money and may be turned down what some restaurants will do is try to recategorize themselves okay well we won't have convenience sales at the service station therefore we don't have to require these nine spaces and that kind of stuff just like the like the owners of bars and restaurants tried to constantly re-identify themselves as the smoking bylaws were slowly foisted upon them so you can see the the bureaucratic nightmare that faces the industry. And none of this, get this, none of this even addresses all of the other regulations and the taxes and the restrictions firmly in place. Most of you aren't in business. Most of you are working for some guy who has to worry about all this stuff. And then what do you do when you say thanks? You say, you know, I don't like you. I'll go on strike against you. You know, <laughs> he's got a lot more problems than you do, let me tell you. Uh, you know, and even though the drive-through issue seems to be a uniquely local one here for London, it, it uh, as it has been portrayed, in fact, by a lot of local media here, this is just not the case. Because I was looking at the um, industry submissions to London City Council in its official minutes, and they were, uh, you know, they had other attached letters and arguments, and they happened to be directed to other municipalities, where obviously these same things are going on. 
and the other municipalities in this case were the region of Kitchener-Waterloo and the Corporation of the City of Sarnia. In a May 12th letter to the region of Waterloo, the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association outlined its concerns over that city's staff report on drive-through facilities and health impacts. And they argued, quote, that the conclusions drawn have the potential for substantial negative impacts on drive-through businesses and unintended environmental consequences. Therefore, the evidence which is used to reach these conclusions must meet a high standard of accuracy, and this report does not meet that standard. And uh, I just, you know, glanced through that report very briefly, and I found a lot of interesting uh, points brought up, and some that just grabbed my eye quickly. As I see, we're running low on time. I've got about seven minutes left to do about ooh, another half hour's worth here. But some of them were, uh, for example, uh, they brought up that drive-throughs generate very few car trips. And that's actually true. I never thought about that because most people just use them as a stop-off on trips they're already taking elsewhere. Uh, now, I have taken the time to actually go to a drive-through the odd time, but usually it's on the way somewhere else. So you're just zipping by, going there. You're, you're already on the way. You're not making an extra trip. It's just that little extra. And if you weigh that, even that choice, against making an extra trip, that's a big plus right there. The report also cites, now this is uh, Kitchener's report, cites pedestrian conflicts with vehicles. This is, again, the pedestrian theme coming out. Eh? It's not just here. As a potential health and safety concern, yet no citation is given as reference for that statement, says the uh, the Restaurant Association. This is particularly concerning as we are not aware of any cases of pedestrians being struck by vehicles in quick service restaurant drive-through lanes anywhere in Canada. And yet they're coming out saying that they have to do all this stuff to protect the pedestrians. There's that theme again, you know. Where are all those conspiracy theorists when you need them? Uh, here's another one, uh, quote, and this is from, again, the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. Many of the arguments relating to drive-throughs put forward in the report cite the convenience factor. However, for those individuals for whom the drive-through is more than a simple convenience, very little attention is paid. And of course, they go through, they've been accused of obesity and talking about idling. In fact, there's an interesting thing here about the Taylor Report 2003, which has apparently concluded that vehicles can idle for up to 10 minutes before there is a difference between the emission released while idling versus turning the engine off and back on again, end quote. hope Steve Orser's listening to that one because he wants to bring in an, an idling bylaw here in City of London. You've got to turn off your car at a railway track. Well, if it's longer than 10 minutes, maybe, but if it's less than 10 minutes, uh, I think you'd be doing more harm to the environment if you're going to base it on this report. And, of course, you've heard all, a lot of the other arguments about... Uh, the cleanliness of the air and all that stuff. And the same thing is going on in Sarnia. You see the same thing. They're using design guidelines for drive-through uses. You know, holy ditto, Batman. It's going on everywhere. There is a conspiracy. Oh, my good. And then, you know, of course, um, there's Kevin Lomack, who from the Council of Canadians had a letter in there as well. And uh, he was all quite happy about the November CO2 strategy on the Environment and Transportation Committee, which is coming up this November, and that's a whole other set of regulations we haven't even talked about yet. And, you know, for me, the tragedy of all this is that so often the victim, the businesses are sanctioning, as Ayn Rand would have put it, their oppressors. Because they're going around arguing on grounds that, while they may be correct, <laughs> they may be perfectly true and correct, 
they're somewhat irrelevant to those putting the industry under pressure to conform to a whole host of subjective dictates of a group of politicians and lobbyists. That's really what you're getting here. So the industry is essentially being forced to provide public services, normally provided by the municipality itself, under the guise of public centralized planning. The city wants sidewalks, bus shelters, weather protection for the public, all that stuff. Drive-through industry is going to be one of the groups that are going to pay for all that. So essentially the city is saying to them through these laws, if you give us what we want, when and how we want it, then we'll let you set up shop in a prohibited zone. We'll bend the rules for you if you join in a design partnership with us so as to blur the distinction between public and private and to form this unique public and private partnership. And uh, I'm sure that Johann, Johann Goldberg in his book Liberal Fascism would regard this relationship I've just described as about as fascistic as you can get in a friendly sort of way. Meanwhile, the government gets to you know, continue to tax the rest of us without having to provide the promised services directly. They just get to pass laws, uh, you know, to, uh, to force industry to do so. So, uh, you know, the whole thing is, uh, I just have to conclude now, we've got about a minute and a half left here, and uh, Ayn Rand, she spoke on this, on the whole environmentalism and the issue between business and, and, and the anti-industrial revolution. And uh, she says, you know, of course the people in business, the industrialists, will be the last to protest. In a mixed economy, the industrialists will swallow anything and apologize for anything. Their abject crawling and climbing on the environmental bag bandwagon is consistent with their policy of the past four or five decades, inculcated by pragmatism. They would rather make a deal with a few more bureaucrats than stand up and face the issue in terms of philosophic moral principles. The greatest guilt of modern industrialists is not the fumes of their factories, but the pollution of this country's intellectual life, which they have condoned, assisted, and supported, end quote. And doesn't that sound a lot like what Lawrence Solomon was saying to the, uh, to the oil clubs there? Now, I, th I realize saying things like this might not endear me to members of the industry, but I hope they understand, and I, I hope you do too, that I point to these uncomfortable and inconvenient truths, to borrow a phrase, in the, hope, in the hopes they might act, you know, somebody might act to save themselves from themselves. Because uh, they've got enough obstacles to deal with without being one themselves. Devil isn't just in the details. It's in the very motivation of those who are making the industry jump through a never-ending series of circus hoops. Partners, indeed. That's it for this week's show, and we'll leave you there. Hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I was driving with a buddy in Montreal today. We're driving three blocks the wrong way in a one-way street. Didn't realize it until my friend said, what does a big silver shiny octagon mean? We didn't know. Neither of us had seen the back of a stop sign before. <laughs> Only there was it seen the back of a stop sign before. <laughs> <laughs>